0: Call to Adventure, hosted by Alexopoulos and John Duckworth, an exploratory conversation about facing the unknown. An opportunity to
1: discuss those pivotal moments that illuminate new paths and reveal deeper purpose and meaning in our lives.
2: We are super excited to have with us today a dear friend Kate Nevin. I describe Kate as adventurous, determined creative, passionate, curious, maybe part Huckleberry Finn with a skirt, (laughs) a Led Zeppelin t-shirt on and some morning cowboy boots, or maybe better yet, Grace Kelly in a gown entering a casino in Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. She is married to Lindsay Nevin. Together they have dreamed and imagined the space now called 1600 Meeting, which is home to a creative colony of artsy entrepreneurs. She attended UNC Chapel Hill and pursued studies in creative writing She is thoroughly engaged in our community through her positions as a board member of the Halsey, the low line of Charleston, a member of the Peninsula Advisory Committee, and was recently honored with a fellowship at the Riley Institute for Diversity Leadership. If that isn't enough, she is an incredible mother to three young children, Grace, Huck, and Hardy, and one old and wise chocolate lab. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, I'm happy to be here.
2: When I look through what it is you do on a daily basis, I just sort of think, wow, how do you all, how do you do it? Uh, And so I'd like to start the conversation by just uh, asking, what does a day in the life of Kate and Evan look like?
1: Um, It's a wild ride. And I will say that it sounds counterintuitive, but since I had my third little baby, um, it's been an easier ride. And I think that what arrived with that third kid that was going to throw off the entire balance and shift everything um, was just this sort of piece of, you know, you can't sweat the small stuff. And when you don't sweat any small stuff, it's amazing how many more moments open up in your day. And I can cram all of those moments with better endeavors and activities and family time and work because I'm just not stressed out about anything anymore. That
0: does sound counterintuitive. Which sounds counterintuitive.
1: Right? So Third
0: child arrives and you've got more room.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's great. That's yeah.
0: typical
2: Kate. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what would you say, well, you just said it, sort of don't sweat the small stuff, but when you think about the qualities um, that, you know, you, you're an incredible mother, you're very engaged in your relationship Thank with your you. husband, you're very engaged in the community. Um, what are the qualities that you sort of most value in, uh, sort of your day to day?
1: Um, you know, I think just the simple idea that we're all doing the best we can. So that's really what I tell my kids every morning. And that's really sort of what we operate under. I'm not a perfectionist. My dad has always said, perfection is the enemy of, you know, good enough. And that sort of resonated with me. So it's, you know, really let's get up and let's give it our best shot. If it doesn't work out, we get to wake up and do it all again tomorrow. And so there's just something sort of liberating when you shift into that sort of frame of mind. And that really helps. And I also think that helps with the family dynamic. We're all busy. My kids are busy. My husband's busy. Um, and it creates more moments for us to be together and just be happy to be together because we're not really worrying about what we got wrong or what we got right or That's what nice. we have to do yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> it's just and survival a, mode.
0: Survival <laughs> mode. <laughs> but you strip the striving out of it. Yeah, and, yeah, I and, think and so. By not sweating the sweating the small stuff. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, we were uh, both Alex and I really appreciate the way you broke down your calls to adventure as. You described having one large arc of a monomyth through your life, but you thought you could really identify three smaller concentric circles throughout. Mm -hmm. um, And you titled them Youth, Independence, and Codependence. Mm -hmm. And so we thought we would just break the discussion down into those three areas and, and start with youth. So, um, I know you grew up in Tennessee. I did. And you said the oldest of four, and also the oldest of, you said, 16 cousins?
1: Exactly, yeah. But
0: maybe tell us a little bit about that, about your childhood.
1: Uh, I grew up, I think, uh, a lot probably like my dad grew up. So, I grew up in, in my the house my dad grew up in and I think it's interesting that a whole generation could pass but our lives could parallel so much so a lot Mm. of his family stayed so he had four siblings one moved um, up to Boston everyone else lived within a one mile radius of our house oh wow so uh, outside of the two cousins that were in Boston all the others were you know right Right down the street (laughs) yeah Yeah. and so that really led to a, a really rich family and extended family life. And I also have people that I call uncles and aunts and I'm pretty sure they're not my uncles <laughs> and aunts. It was one of those communities that we kind of grew up in. Maybe they're like a second cousin twice removed or just a good friend of... Just
0: lumped into family. Just lumped
1: into family. Okay. And so it was... Um, cool. You know, it was an intri- it, was a, it was a very um, supportive and, 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 and sort of sweet way to grow up.
0: And pretty wide open, you were telling me.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. I think when you have that um, sort of Large safety net there of, of knowing mm. your neighbors. Um, you know, I was pretty much left to my own devices as a child. My parents were not, there was no time to be a helicopter parent. I mean, they had so many other things going on with other kids, and uh, sometimes I don't know how my mom did it all, but um, so it was nice. I mean, I woke up in the morning and Left and, and, and met friends and, you know, ambled through the creeks and climbed through the caves and the rocks and, you know, walked the not busy streets, you know, just throughout the course of the day. And, and it was it was nice because I think early on I was um, I was making my own adventure. Mm, there was nobody yeah. really to make it for me. And so... You were
0: left free to do that.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. You nice. just had to be home by dinner.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah.
2: Talking about adventure, <laughs> you summited Mount Rainier at age 15. I did. Went to Africa solo at 16. Yeah. Taught nursery school in Kamega.
1: Kakamega. Kakamega, Kenya. Kenya.
2: Lived with a woman I had never met. Went to Rio Verde, Ecuador at 17 to help with a public initiative. Home was sacred, but the world was big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you talked about sort of not having fears and, and, and as I'm thinking about youth versus where you are today, um, you know, when do you first remember fear as a, as a youngster and maybe what was your reaction to it and how'd you learn from it? And how did that not become a part of your vocabulary?
1: What's interesting? Cause I think th- that fear to me was, um, the things under my bed It was, yeah, I remember one time I killed a bee in my room and I told my dad and he said, well, you know, all the rest are going to come back and get you now. And I thought, oh my God, (laughs) really? You know, so it's those those totally fantastical fears, but I never really had, and maybe that's the support system I grew grew up with. Maybe that's feeling like I was sort of in a safe zone um, and left to sort of explore, but my fears were never... Real fears. You so
2: know?
1: when you go to Africa,
0: there was it, there was no trepidation involved there. It was more, this is a curious adventure.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. so I went, I went a, at sixteen with my grandparents, and we we did a, a safari and, and traveled around for two weeks, and then they all left, and I stayed there, and a, s- a strange person, you know, met me at the airport, and you know, I think I was, I definitely remember. Feeling like I was very much being left behind, you know that was a little bit scary um, but i don 't i don 't think i 've ever been afraid of the new, and I guess I felt mm. that I was in good hands, yeah, you know, I think maybe I have a pretty good sense of, of danger fear or or you know but 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 yeah i think I think I recognized that everything was going to be okay. this was totally new, I had no idea what was going to happen. There was a little trepidation, but it wasn't really a, a fear, mm. really. Y-
2: you know, we, we had a conversation with uh, Janet Alterman, who uh-huh. you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, I loved that interview. It was great.
2: And she's been fighting, really, her entire life for sort of women's rights, mm-hmm. um, both around the world and, and, and particularly in this country. And I think in the Post and Courier, there's a recent article just about the um, South Carolina as the deadliest state for women, mm.
0: yeah.
2: um, which, which brought that conversation back home. But as a, as a girl growing up, uh, you know, I described you sort of as Huckleberry Finn. Um, did, did you ever feel limited or categorized uh, as a youth as being, quote unquote, a girl? And how did you ever come in that box to, to be what I would refer to as just a human being?
1: Um, the first thing that comes to mind. I didn't understand in the fourth or fifth grade why girls could not be on the football team. <laughs> so I actually tried to get a petition <laughs> started so that Coach Buck Stamps would let the girl. He said, "You know, you can cheerlead. You can. There's things we can get you to do during the games." I said, "No, Coach. I, I would really like to play." I don't think I really wanted to play. I think I just wanted to be a part, and and it just seemed silly to me that 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 I couldn't. So, it, I don't remember him. Buck Stamps, I think, was the entertain, you know, ent- entertained by the idea, but that never really went anywhere. Um, so, I, I, you know, I never really pushed up against it um, growing up. And then I went to an all girls school for high school and felt um, very supported there, you know, really felt very. Um, uh, you know, the level of confidence they instill and not really having boys as a distraction. It just was never the opportunity for the teacher to call on the boy versus the girl. Mm. Um, And so it was kind of a non-issue really until, I think the first time I really recognized how it's tough to be a woman in the world sometimes was when I got to New York and and was working in the financial industry. And I realized, wow, there is still a lot of- That'll do it. That'll do it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, but fortunately, I didn't, you know, grow up bumping against a...
0: And you had already developed a pretty strong sense of uh, confidence and self-identity so, yeah. by that point. Yeah. Huh.
1: So I had the tools to kind yeah, of overcome right. it, which was good. Yeah. But that's not always the case. So I'm, I'm definitely grateful for, for that.
0: Um, one of the 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 questions that we talk about with the Call to Adventure is that oftentimes there's this road of trials. There's sort of hurdles and things you have to uh, get through in order mm-hmm. to, to make it to the other side and make it through this sort of transformation. So in your youth, when you break this down into your youth and you talk about these different adventures you went on and the different things you did, were there moments where, like, what are the things that you the takeaways from those experiences where you mm-hmm. feel like in hindsight you say, oh, that's how I really grew through mm-hmm. that experience?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was just the the recognition that I, it's really just up to me. Right. Mm. I mean, and I think I also recognize that I was given some pretty great opportunities and that I wasn't meant to squander them. So, you know, I think, um, you know, if you look at the world today, I think that, you know, talent and insight and thoughtfulness is everywhere, but opportunity is not. So recognizing early on that opportunity was a big part of, of what would, what would help me mm. in my future endeavors was taking advantage of every single moment that that I could and so i think that fearlessness that sort of maybe drove the fearlessness of not being afraid to go on these adventures to places i'd never been and and also sort of having my parents you know push me a little bit more maybe than most parents did to, to leave the home in the summer or, you know, right after high school or, you know, not yeah. coming back after college, like to really push me out into the world. Um, was, I guess sort of what sort of kept me going, you know, and, and, and kind of rising beyond my fears and off to the next yeah. chapter, whatever it may be. It's just the sense that it was there for the taking.
0: That's great. Well, I know, um, We'd like to play a song that uh, connects to your youth and childhood. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a beautiful piece that uh, uh, sort of uh, walks somebody through their life and the different phases of life. It's called Dress Me Up, Dress Me Down by Robinella and the C.C. String Band. Enjoy.
3: Dressed in cotton, ready for bed I asked my dad to kiss my head Daddy, thanks for loving me Now I'm tired and I'm gonna sleep dressed in Wonder Woman underwear spinning circles in the summer air picking green beans and shucking corn my family's love to keep me warm you can dress me me.
0: great song i love that and uh it certainly makes me think of what it might feel like to grow up in tennessee Mm -hmm. and of course the first thing it reminds me of is you mentioned you just read a book by sally Mann called hold still Mm -hmm. and of course you know this song about growing up makes me think of that great photo series she did called immediate family in the early 90s of her children Uh and those just sort of beautiful poignant snapshots really but then the way they were done they were just sort of beautiful and haunting and and all at once
1: absolutely yeah I've discovered Sally Mann as an artist in college Um, and so I was so wonderfully surprised that she's such an exquisite writer Hmm. the book just really pulled me in so quickly Um, I don't read a lot of nonfiction or memoir so um I was surprised and I think some of that might have been that I instantly felt such a connection to, oh, yeah. to to her describing the photographs of her children or growing up in Virginia and her connection with nature and the landscape of where she lived and um, it, just being a, a southern you know girl sort of navigating all of all the baggage and beauty that comes along with that it, it was yeah. really relatable and, and then to just have those Images right. that are so burned in our vision, the stunning series she did. Um,
0: it's amazing, pretty controversial series it too, Which was. Was, was surprisingly because it was. Uh, um, uh, just because her children were naked and people were comparing right. that to pornography, well, which, right. which which is shocking, which,
1: which is kind but, of like the viewer that you know, it's like you're uh, you bring your own baggage right. to the picture. <laughs> so she's like, whoa, it's, I don't know what right. you're thinking, you know? I right. mean, and a lot of that was really interesting because she went. Obviously, into great detail she about did. that in her book, because that oh, was a significant part of you know her life and her her work and her struggle and her sort of coming to terms with what her work means to other people, to her family. So it was really beautiful to hear her in such great detail talk about what that series meant to not just mm. her as an artist but as a mother and how her children felt about it and the way they sort of separated they realized that they were subject matter. It didn't feel like it was a personal She gave them moment.
0: veto power. Yeah. She did. Over which the photographs was that went into the book. Yeah, so this so wasn't they were all so approved. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. And, so and all she, approved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it was really interesting. And, and one thing that I found so fascinating too um, was that she talked about how her most visceral memories as a child were ones that were never photographed so that in the act of taking a photograph you sort of remember that image as opposed to when you really have to co- reconjure up that experience in your head you remember the sense the sort of the senses and the and the sound smell without the photo yeah. and it was that was a really impactful uh, part of the book as well because you know i think of her work so much as capturing the essence, and it actually, it actually wasn't. The essence is sort of what you hold dear in your heart, and in your mm. mind, and in, in your experience. It's not the photograph, and it was, it was a fabulous book. I recommend it to. It's to so, so interesting people. the yeah. difference
0: between you know the, the photographic image and the actual memory yeah. of the experience. And yeah. it's similar. We talked about uh, the way a song does the same thing. Yeah where it just has this gut, guttural sort of visceral reaction. And, or a and, smell. Or a yeah. smell, right, yeah. right. Yeah. And like this song in particular, the Dress Me Up, Dress Me Down, when you, when you hear that first line about uh, uh, in, in Wonder Woman underwear. <laughs> yes. And, and you told t- me a story about <laughs> Dixie cups. I
1: was totally obsessed with Wonder Woman. Yeah. And so, yes, I was dancing around in Wonder Woman underwear. And for the proper sort of accoutrement that she wore, you know, so I bust out the bottom of a Dixie cup, which fit perfectly over my wrist, <laughs> the awesome. little Dixie cups. Yeah. So those were the bulletproof sort of bracelets. And then, you know, aluminum foil made a really fantastic um, crown. So we got really creative under Ruse growing up in Tennessee. It's a, good, it's a great memory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: It, Absolutely. It, it, in the second sort of uh, phase we're going to get into, you, you referred to it as sort of independence. Yeah. Um, testing boundaries, searching for what I wanted or thought I wanted. Yeah. And so what did you think you wanted?
1: <clears throat> um, you know, when I, it's, it's funny. I, when I got to Chapel Hill, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And um, I got uh, pretty good grades in biology and then I got... A D in the same chemistry ta- class mm. I took twice got a D twice and I thought okay mm. I'm gonna switch so that was sort of the first time that I think I recognized independently that what I wanted might not be what I needed or what I was suited for and so then that's how I found my way to creative writing and American studies and I was just sort of like wow this is this is it you know uh, and then from that moment I thought you know well maybe I'll be a, a writer yeah that. Obviously did not pan out. Um, but you know, I still um, I still do write a lot. I think I appreciate a novel, and I think I, I you know I enjoy constructing sentences, you know, whatever it may be for. but um, but, yeah, I think that a lot of, and I remember my dad telling me that when I graduated from Chapel Hill as the oldest of four, I really felt a sense of okay. I got to get this life stuff figured out. I got to get the job straight away. Like there was no oh, man, go to Europe and you know get a URL pass, or there wasn't really this um, time. I felt a real sense of urgency for huh. real life to begin. And, and none of my siblings I think felt that urgency, <laughs> but I did. And um, and so I think that that was you know I remember my dad telling me that it's easier to figure out what you want to do. By figuring out what you don't want to do. And so I think mm-hmm. I spent some of my sort of independent years figuring out, okay, I didn't actually like that. You know, my first job in DC was not very stimulating or challenging and 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 that was okay, you know. I I yeah. You know, quit after a year and took my savings and went to spain and and then you know ended up back in new york so i think you know i think when you and maybe that was great advice to get early on when you recognize that nothing's set in stone that to get to the to heart of the matter to get to really who you are you're gonna have to to sort of figure out what you're not first or figure out what sure. you don't like first and so that i think was really helpful advice early on
0: it's a, the, there's a, uh, a yoga practice of discernment uh, mm-hmm. uh, it, that's, you know, in the same way. It's just not this, not this. And it's it's a way of getting at the truth. Mm-hmm. What is true? Sure. And as you process of elimination, you get at the truth.
1: Yeah, I think there's so much pressure to like have a calling or feel like this is what I was meant to do. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I felt it, you have to have that figured out straight away. And I think life is part of trial and error.
2: When, when uh, Jeremy Rutledge, who we had a conversation with last week, talked a lot about bearing witness, sort of sitting with the truth and mm-hmm. sort of absorbing that. When you think about, you know, um, being in places or doing things that don't feel right, yeah. How, How long does it sort of, how how long do you, once you sit with that, are you pretty quick to move after you know your intuition says it? I
1: think I wish I was quicker.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I
1: mean, I think I'd walk with a stone in my shoe for too long, you know, but I know it's there. And I think, is it worth the time to sit down and undo my hiking boot and Mm -hmm. dump that, you know? But so I think, I I look back and I think I wish I was maybe a bit more bold or a bit more quicker, faster with a decision. But uh, that might just be my personality. Maybe yeah. I'm just kinda waiting to see if things are, are gonna change. But I do I've never waited too long. Never waited okay. too long. Yeah. But but I think there were times when I could have pulled the ripcord.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you one one of the other things you mentioned, sort of in this sort of phase of life, is okay. just sort of testing boundaries, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, um did you find that to be the case in your situation, um, that when you tested those boundaries you created a lot of friction because a lot of people knowingly or unknowingly sort of have boundaries put on you. Right. 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 Um,
1: um,
2: did you have, yeah,
1: yeah. And I think, you know, it, it was probably all f- sort of an internal friction, right? I mean, sort of brushing up against what did or did not agree with me, you know, or, or what I was and was not comfortable with. Um, and, um, You know, I think moving to New York was probably sort of one of those, you know, I think for a moment I thought I would move back south or maybe end up in Charlottesville or someplace and all of a sudden I kind of, I don't even remember how it, it, it really ended up shaking out, but I ended up moving to Manhattan, which really was never, you know, never part of my game plan. Never planned. Never planned. Um, You know, I was kind of that Huck Finn in a skirt. Like, I just never saw myself gelling with city life. But now looking back, I think, okay, well, if anyone ever has the opportunity to move to New York, do it. Did you because love it? I don't know if I would say I love okay. it, but I love what I learned You love there. what you learned. I love what okay. I learned there. I was there for two years, and two I think years. you really get a sense of... The world of of you know what you can and, and cannot handle. I mean, I was definitely pushing boundaries in New York and pushing sort of the limits of of um, experiences. Whether it was you know a brand new sort of career that I never thought I'd fall into.
0: Yeah, and how did that happen? So you went up there to pursue creative writing, and, yeah. right? And yeah. then you end up at Lehman Brothers. <laughs> I went up there to write like I, a great American
1: know. novel, did or somebody you know, work, tell you the wrong address? <laughs> yeah.
0: You're like, I'm here for the creative writing job. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this is Lehman Brothers.
1: I think, um, uh, but we're looking for people. But we're looking so for people. You're in. in. No, I think um, you know. I got up there and I interviewed at some magazines, and I pretty. I realized pretty quickly that wow, you know, it's. I might not be able to eat. I might it's like. Hard. It's hard to yeah. be, and so that's why I have so much, um, just awe and wonder and amazement and just sheer, you know. I'm just in awe uh, ultimately of people that really pursue their craft through thick and thin. And I mm. think I also kind of recognized that maybe I wasn't gonna be, you know, Sally Mann writing a memoir book, you know, okay. I maybe so I, so, you know, the, the magazines uh, didn't end up, just didn't, wasn't a good fit. And I think my dad said, well, why don't you interview on Wall Street, see what happens? And I did and ended up taking a job at Lehman Brothers. And, um, Actually, you know, really enjoyed it and surprised myself. Huh. And it was interesting. They were not looking. Um, I did a start analyst training program, and they actually weren't looking for people with business backgrounds. They were oh, okay. looking for people that could communicate well, that could, um, you know, had analytical skills. And so it was it was a unique opportunity inside that big sort of world of Wall Street that they were actually looking for. Somebody just like somebody you. Somebody just like me. Right. Huh. And so um, it ended up being a pretty good fit.
2: Nice. New York circa 2001 yeah. leaves all of us with uh, haunting memories. You were there. I was um, there. Ground zero. Yeah. Uh, how, how did that tragedy sort of shape your worldview? I mean, pretty soon after you decided to leave. Yeah. You talk about falling in love and we'll get into those <laughs> yeah. things too. Um, but just walk us through sort of that experience.
1: Um yeah it was really surreal because it was a beautiful Tuesday morning and um I was actually so my subway stop was the uh was the trade tower so I would get off at um the stop there and walk across the skybridge to the World Financial Center which was connected to the trade towers and um that morning I was actually headed to take um Series 7 preparation course for a, a mm-hmm. securities exam I had to take and so I was going one more subway stop to to Rector Street but we stopped in the World Trade Towers and they said, you know, no one get out. A smoke bomb has gone off. Um, we're just going to go to the next stop. And so I'm just thinking, what? A smoke bomb, you know, but really just went right back to reading my book or the newspaper and then got out of the subway and, and walked up, you know, to, to street level. Beautiful, beautiful day. I remember how beautiful that day was. And this man looks at me and he says, how, how are you doing? And as somebody that's relatively new to New York, I thought this man is crazy, obviously, right? No one asked, how are you doing in that sort of concerned yeah. way? And I thought, oh, I'm fine, you know, how are you? And he said, oh, a plane has just hit the trade tower. So we looked up and that first plane, um, I don't think the impact really had set in yet. I don't think any of us had connected to what obviously what was happening and the impact of that plane wasn't um, as as powerful as the second. So there were some papers flying it was very surreal. We were standing there staring at the building and kind of hypothesizing what might've happened and you know, pilot error or whatever. And at that moment, the second plane was coming down the Hudson and was sort of coming behind the towers. So it was out of my vision. It was blocked by the towers. And so all I saw was that big, huge fireball that was oh, wow. the second plane. And the man grabbed me and we ran. and. Um, it just led to a series of ended up getting picked up by a news van and, and taken to my apartment, um, which was very lucky because a lot of friends that walked the whole island of Manhattan that day to get back home. Um, so ended up home, um, pretty quickly, but it was, it was, um, it was a significant shift in, in my world view And I think my sense of safety and, and my sense of, um, mortality, you know, I mean, coming out of college, you feel super, you know, immortal and, and life seems like it's just yours, sort of your oyster. And, and that really was, um, a turning point and okay, you know, it's life is precious. I'm young, but, Hmm. um, bad things happen. And, um, and, and for someone who had had a pretty, um, safe existence up to that point, that's a huge, um, a huge shock. Um, but I will say that, um, I I am really honored to have been in New York before and after 9-11 because it was it was fascinating to see how the city changed and how a shared experience like that can really bring neighbors together and people together and and for me I think I stayed on another year but it shifted priorities as well I think you refocus you know that's how, how
0: did you what's your connection to Charleston then? How did you end up here?
1: So uh, I met my husband. Um, actually, we ended up meeting in D.C. at a concert, a rock concert. And he was living here. And we did the long-distance thing for about a year. Okay. So after 9-11, it just got so hard to travel back and forth as well. I think that was yeah. might have been another thing. And I did have um, some family here and some good friends here. And so it just... To, felt like, a good, felt place like to a good place to land. hang out. Yeah. 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 So that was a pretty easy decision.
2: Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a moment <laughs> and uh, listen to a song by Bob Dylan. Yes.
1: Uh, Bear Mountain
2: hero. Picnic Massacre, uh-huh. uh, which you use to sort of describe this uh, time in your life we'll, we'll refer to as uh, independence. Enjoy.
4: Well, I saw they advertised one day that the Bear Mountain picnic was coming my way. Come along and take a trip, we'll bring you up there on a ship. Bring the wife and family, bring the whole kids. Yippee! Well, I run right down and bought a ticket to this thing called the Bear Mountain picnic. Little did I realize I was in for a pleasant, funny surprise. It had nothing to do with picnics. Didn't come close to a mountain. I hate bears. Took the wife and kids down to the pier. There was 6,000 people there. Everybody had a ticket for the trip. Oh, well, I said, it's a pretty big ship. Besides, anyhow, the more the merrier. Well, we all got on, and what do you think? That big old boat started to sink. More people kept piling on. That old ship was a-going down. Funny way to start a picnic. Well, I soon lost track of my kids and wife, so many people I never saw in my life. That old ship was sinking down in the water. There were 6,000 people trying to kill each other. Dogs are barking, cats are screaming, women are yelling, men are flying, fists are flying, paper flying, cops are coming, me running. Maybe we just better call off the picnic. I got shoved down, got pushed around, all I remember was a moaning sound Don't remember one thing more, all I remember is waking up on the shore My arms and legs were broken, my feet were splintered, my head was cracked I couldn't walk, couldn't talk, smell, feel, couldn't see I didn't know where I was, I was bald Quite lucky to be alive though Well, feeling like I just climbed out of my casket I grabbed back hold of my picnic basket Took the wife and kids and started home Wishing I never got up that morning Now, I don't care just what you do If you want to have a picnic, that's up to you But don't tell me about it, I don't want to hear it You see, I just lost all my picnic spirit Stay in my kitchen Have Have a picnic in my bathroom Well, it don't seem to me quite so funny what some people are going to do for money. There's a brand new gimmick every day just to take somebody's money away. I think we ought to take some of these people, put them on a boat, send them up the Bear Mountain for a picnic.
0: So, talking Bear Mountain Picnic Massacre, I guess, you know, bringing a little levity to the conversation. Um, You know, he wrote that when he was 20 years old.
1: Amazing. Makes
0: me wonder what I was doing at 20. I know, Definitely wasn't writing songs (laughs) like that.
1: Amazing, yeah.
0: Um, But uh, I've been to that, to Bear Mountain up the Hudson River. Uh It's actually a pretty pretty big climb on a bicycle and it's one of the places i would ride when i stay up to hudson up oh, in a place wow. called garrison and uh-huh. uh... right across the river from west point right where uh... benedict arnold had his famous uh, mm-hmm. misadventures mm-hmm. but the song is not about that no um... So the next phase, you're back in Charleston, oh, yeah. you're married, and you talk about codependence. You have three children now, and <laughs> yeah. it's a whole new thing. This isn't just about Kate Nevin anymore. No.
2: Well, codependence also with the E-N-C-E as opposed to E-N-T-S. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference, uh-huh. right? There is a big uh-huh. difference.
3: Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: But talk about that, because, uh, you know, from, from our vantage point... Uh, you now balance sort of being independent and being uh, a wife and a mother to three and sort of uh, very sort of uh, rooted. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that a natural transition because of the family upbringing that you had or was there some sort of friction in getting to that comfort level?
1: Um, You know, I think it was... um my personality and then how sort of Lindsay and I, my husband and I sort of fit together early on is really maintaining our own individual lives at the same time coming together and really happy that we were together. So I think we, you know, I sort of carried that into being a mother and recognizing that I'm going to be a a much better mother, a, a much better wife if I'm true to myself. You know, I love the saying if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, and I think that that's true. I think if I'm if I'm feeling full and satisfied and connected and engaged that might look like busy to some people, but to me it's really sort of feeding into sort of who I am as a as a being and that translates I think mm-hmm. into being a a better A better spouse, a better mom. You're Um, content
0: with that kind of a challenge because you're evolving as an individual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and then it, you know, of course, plays out in everybody around you because if you're if you're happy, those who are around you
1: feel that as well. The reverse is true. If mom is happy, then everybody's going to be happy. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: You you know what? When when you think about all of your philanthropic activities. Mm whether it's uh, your time spent with the Riley Institute uh, for Diversity or founding Enough Pie, and we can talk about what Enough Pie does. Yeah. Um, you sort of f- framed that as saying you wanted to, you know, what kind of world do I want my children to live in and how can I create that?
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, which I thought was, f- John and I were talking about it. What a wonderful way to look at it. I, I, have, I haven't looked at it that way, so yeah. it was, uh, thanks for...
1: Well, you know, I think um, I'm one of those people where if I recognize that something's missing or there might be another possibility, I kind of have to do it Mm -hmm. um, for better or worse. There are probably times when I shouldn't have. But, you know, once I kind of got back and got very settled into the community here and you know i was inspired by so many people along the way my experiences at the halsey and mark sloan and just amazing women i met here i mean everything sort of fed into wow this is such an amazing place but what sort of what is what does that mean for my kids i mean all of a sudden you kind of it's Mm -hmm. not again it's not just about me anymore and beyond that it's 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 not just about my generation anymore so sort of what's the legacy what am i doing you know because i think that's an interesting dynamic too and what my sort of job is you know it that my kids have no idea (laughs) what i do um so it's nice to somehow balance that out with something that i do one that makes sense for them for them but But two has also sort of been almost my calling into creating a a better community for them. For them. For them, yeah. Yeah. And and having them be a part of that and having them be a voice in that. Um, You know, so I I think that that really is, you know, sort of how this all became so urgent to me was because I recognized that it wasn't really about just something creative and something fun, it was really preserving. The positive aspects that we have, you know, in the community now, and 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 trying to figure out, okay, what what is not working as well as we wanted to? How can we? How can we?
0: Reminds me of a Ken Wilber uh, saying is uh, uh, transcending and including. I love right. that. And oh, yeah. and it makes me want to ask you what we ask everybody here: if Charleston is a person,
1: yeah,
0: uh, uh, who is Charleston? What does Charleston look like right now?
1: Um, I've loved hearing people's answers to that. I love that that's one of you guys' questions. and so I had a little, you know, advanced notice and I was thinking about that when I was listening to, to um, I don't remember whose interview, but, you know, I think it's kind of funny that we think of Charleston as this really old city. And, you know, in the in the worldwide view, we're just not that old. You know, I think about some of these old European cities and they're, they are old. You know, they are that old Italian man sitting on the stoop spinning tails. And I really think about Charleston as being... Um, somebody young, somebody kind of coming out of that sort of, you know, youth into the independent phase and, mm-hmm. and having enough history, having enough recognition of, of who they are, but really being in a turning point of where do I want to go now and how do I take the baggage, the good, the bad and turn that into... You know, a life I want to live and a place I want to be, and so I think char- I think this is an inter- and it feels interesting for me to live here now and kind of recognize those journeys in my own life because I really do feel like that's kind of where Charleston is right now. We're really yeah. recognizing who we were and who we want to be, and and sort of what what we what we want to carry and what we want to leave behind. Um, so
0: along those lines, well, I love that description because yeah. it 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 really feels a little different than. We ask that same question to a lot of people, and I and I love you framing it in that in that age range, a little bit younger than most people mm-hmm. would would first anticipate. Um, and of course, you know, you're on uh, 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 quite a few of these uh, boards in town, and actively involved in the community. And you talk about framing this this question as, how, what does the city look like mm-hmm. for your children? Mm-hmm. So, what what does it look like maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now? If and when you're looking forward and envisioning the future. What does Charleston look like?
1: Um, You know, I hope it looks... Ideally, maybe it would look just uh, optics and sort of uh, on the surface what it looks like today. I think we do a great job preserving the beauty, but I hope it feels a lot different. I hope it feels a lot more connected. And, you know, I hope, you know, maybe part of that is optics. I hope it looks a lot more diverse. I think we have diverse pockets, um, but I think there's so much more... um, Inclusion and um, collaboration that needs to happen. And so for me, you know, a lot of that comes creatively. And so I would love to see more art out there, you know, more activation of spaces we don't think about congregating, more different people connecting in those spaces. And, you know, you walk down a street in Manhattan and you get up there for work occasionally. And I just, I I love the vibrancy and, and that sort of, there's just everyone is, they're on their own path, but there are a gazillion different paths and people walking that same sidewalk yeah. every day. So I think, you know, Charleston is gonna grow. I think that's a, a fact. And, you know, I think we really need to get engaged on how we want to grow. And I think, you know, deciding that we want the city, what it, what we want it to look like will really help inform how we get how we get there and how we do it. So I hope to see, you know, maybe the same sort of, Grid and architecture, but a lot more, uh, it's more of a sense than yeah, maybe what I'm seeing. Sense. A feeling yeah. sense. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: You know, I, I loved, uh, I listened to the TEDx you did on sort of a citizen artist mm-hmm. um, because you're p- very politically engaged, uh, which a lot of people um, I find of our generation find, uh, you know, dysfunctional. Yeah. There's a lot of apathy, uh, bureaucratic. Yeah. Um, and yet, when you talk about citizen artist, it just makes it much more expansive. Yeah, um, being a, a citizen, but being open to ideas and providing solutions, and talk uh, talk to us about yeah. what that means to you.
1: Yeah, you know, at the very basic level, we all have the power to be change makers. We really do, and I think sometimes that gets lost because of the frustration we see. Mm-hmm. Um, and we feel like we, our voice doesn't matter and that we don't count and, and that no one's listening to our needs. And I think it's a little bit easier to be apathetic or maybe f- feel defeated. Um, so it is hard to rise I think to the occasion of being a citizen artist just in the mindset, but it's actually very easy to do it. Um, you know, and I think that, that what I was trying to say there too was to kind of take being an artist out of the box that people put it in. And to me, being an artist is just really sharing something with the world that wasn't there before, that's creative or innovative, or, you know, whether it's a mural or whether it's a play or whether, you know, that's all very sort of creative crafts. But I think that translates into how we live in our city. You know, how do we engage with our neighbors? How do we, you know, I think expecting people and, and, you know, the politicians or the, or the sort of system to take care of us hmm. is what frustrates us then. Cause it, it might not in the ways we need it to. So trying to instill that if you have an idea for a better way to do something, then let's, Talk about that. Let's Let's make that happen. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But you know, if if we can, it's a
0: different framework there. Though it brings energy into the conversation and and, uh, and openness, as you said. I mean, it reminds me of a of a Thoreau quote where he says. Uh, to affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of the arts. Yes. And yeah. and it, that can be anything. Yeah. That could be a home-cooked meal. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It could be anything. And absolutely. And it, 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 it brings, you know, that creativity out of the realm of some exclusive elitist area to, like, yeah, everybody. Exactly. Everybody can be creative. Exactly. Everybody's
1: an artist. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I love that. I think that's a very powerful... Thing, yeah. And the more we push that, and the more especially we when you put the word citizen, "citizen" in front yes. of it,
0: too. That, that Cause citizen an interesting sort of has
1: an air of responsibility, right? You're mm-hmm. connected. You're part of a whole. You're a sort of a yeah. citizen. So you have this sort of. It's a very individual term, but it it sort of signifies a larger context. A larger context, yeah. and so yeah. citizen artist, yeah, just makes sense to me. You guys are citizen artists, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time
0: here. Shoot!
2: Um, I think this is going to have to be another part two. <laughs> we have a part two, right? Right, right.
0: I've got a, I three other questions on the tip of my tongue, but we, we're we, not going to be able to get into it. We got Bernie Man.
2: <laughs> I know. We got Che. We got That's Cuba. Right. Cuba. That's right. And yeah.
0: somehow, yeah. Kate spent. Uh, was backstage with Bob Dylan at one point right like there's that we all cannot kinds of talk that about that
1: on the radio it's so. not on the radio <laughs> this, we're, we're done
0: <laughs> alright so we're just gonna have to lead out with another song and you've chosen Letters from Rome by Anders Osborne and Big Chief Monk Boudreau yes which is great and I think everybody will enjoy it. It, uh, it makes me, before we go though, I, uh, there's a quote that I love that I think uh, you would probably love as well. It's uh, by Margaret Mead and she says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, concerned citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I love it. And I feel like you fall right in line with, 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 with that mantra. And before we
2: go, we have to, Kate has to read her favorite quote. Yeah, by Lao Tzu, which, oh, yes. uh, which is one of my favorite. It's on my uh, desk as we speak.
1: We have a lot of favorite quotes. Yeah, we do. And, and I think we have <laughs> the same one in our wallet that we've been carrying for years. Um, so this is one of my favorites I read when I was, I think, 14. A leader is best when people barely know he exists. When his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will say, we did it ourselves.
0: Thanks for being here, Kate.
1: Thank you. We are
5: all in this together Said the captain to his crew It's pretty much a secret mission You are all the chosen few Now let's sail in the morning sun got up over Belize Point As they slowly left the coast mm-hmm. Heading straight for open waters Somewhere they could be their most I mm-hmm. set course for tomorrow And make this ship and the commotion the Deck got filled with rum and pee The salty wind ran their emotions And four good men plunged to the sea and No, they won't see tomorrow Nor their names since stone saw the letters from Rome They reached the docks of Midland Glory And people came from far beyond Bringing gifts and admirations To the ship the king was on they all danced till the sun rose then left the crew alone with nothing but letters from home. yes there's man Jack he jumped ship then he married with a lady of the north she brought him love. So goes the story And he left the ocean for her warmth And they rode into the sunset A beautiful unknown No more letters from no home Yeah, this old boat has lost its direction the captain cried with all his might incoming storm make preparations this is a battle for our lives and they were played by some sickness the captain
2: Welcome back to the show. That's uh, Kate and Evan. What a great conversation. Um, lots of interesting things came out of that, John. One of them was the idea of a citizen artist. What, what, what did you think about that? Yeah, I love the way she
0: phrases that. It's, it's, it's a really cool way to put a twist on on both being a citizen and being an artist. And And you and I talked about... The two ways you can you can flip that: one is the citizen artist, and then you can also talk about it as the artist citizen, which is something that I um, feel really strongly about that you know art as uh, life as creative process, and it's sort of you know taking it out of the realm of the exclusive and into everybody's hands. Everybody's an artist, and at the same time, this idea of the citizen artist uh, lends a different uh, color to the conversation. It sort of creates a more open space to reside as a citizen, where um, instead of being apathetic it it brings a bit more sort of energy to being uh, a citizen of this community, of this country, you know, and, and being able to create uh, a better place to live, a better community for yourself and for those around you.
2: It's interesting. Words matter, don't they? Absolutely. It's very put subtle. You just put those two words together, and it has just an entirely different meaning. It's wonderful. Um, two other things that really popped out to me were her thoughts about balance and, you know, um, she's a daughter. She's a wife. She's a mother of three. Uh, she's fully employed, politically very active, um, very involved in the arts, founded Enough Pie. Um, and she talked about sort of, you know, if, uh, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. And, and sort of uh, the way in which she's happy is by being fulfilled in all those different arenas, mm-hmm. and that um, one enriches the other. And they're not in competition. You know, it's not a zero-sum game. Um, yeah, that's a beautiful way to th- think about that topic of balance. I think. Yeah, it kind of takes a little bit of the tension yeah. out of you know our always busy days. Right. You know,
0: when you yeah. think about them really fueling and feeding each other.
2: Right. Which is which is enough pie. You know, I think it's another way uh, that I think about that is that there's um, you know unlimited resources. It's mm-hmm. not finite. That there is enough pie to go around. Can you talk a little bit about? Well, what I,
0: yeah, it's great because I mean, the enough pie is really focused on the upper peninsula, which is really historically an underserved uh, aspect of the Charleston peninsula, and they're just trying to sort of shine a light on that and make some points of connection, and it doing that through creative process, and to engage that community um, in the larger context of the Charleston community, and and they're doing some really wonderful creative projects. You know, everything from the inaugural event awakenings at 1600 meeting street to putting up outdoor artwork um creative placemaking you know there's a huge series of murals on uh, Hugie street uh there's a art uh installation that's going to happen october 27th called sound and light that uh sounds really interesting and of
2: course you can find out more on enoughpie.org so uh what a great conversation we might have to have part two uh yeah she's fun to have around yeah, we'll bring is. her back Thanks uh, Thanks for spending another hour of your time with us. Uh, this is Alexopoulos, John Duckworth, uh, Call to Adventure. And thanks uh, to Ohm Charleston. 96.3. Cheers.
0: And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your Call to Adventure.
3: This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.